So um, this is the Crush the Cargill podcast, a podcast about running and stuff. And today the guest, our special guest, is Tom Hyam, Professor of Archaeology at Oxford University and an old mate of mine. So, Tom, do you run? Um, I have run in the past, but uh, I tend to not be very good at it because I, um, unfortunately, have a bit of asthma. Oh, okay. Never mind. So we'll talk about stuff that are running the juice on the squash court rather than actually uh, actually uh, running any long distances. So that's why I'm in the review. Oh, so you do you do play you do play squash still? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, although unfortunately not at the moment with this damn lockdown. Um, yeah, but so usually I'd play two or three games a week. Oh yeah, good. Yeah. So yeah. where are you? I'm actually in Greece at the moment. Um, my wife is Greek, so we've come to Greece to escape the UK. We, um, we, 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 um, we've been in New Zealand for um, about seven weeks earlier this year. And when we came back to the UK, we decided that uh, it was probably going to be a bad situation there in terms of the um, coronavirus because things weren't very well prepared there and they hadn't really done anything to protect people. So we made a snap decision that we weren't going to stay there anticipating the lockdown. So we came to Greece and it's been a brilliant decision because we're here with family as we don't have um, you know, a close family anywhere near us where we live in the UK. So we've come here and uh, it's, just been, it's just been brilliant. Like in New Zealand, the government here has been really proactive and they, they lock down very quickly. The number of cases has been very low, so we're very lucky and they're easing it now. So in the, warmers, the weather's getting warmer too, which makes a big difference. Yeah, looks like the rate there is similar to New Zealand actually. So has the lockdown been the same sort of lockdown or what's it like? It's been pretty hardcore, yeah. Um, when we arrived, we had to go straight into two weeks of quarantine and we were phoned up every second day by either the police or the health ministry to make sure we were still on lockdown. We yep. heard that people were getting fined um, up to 500 euros for breaking the uh, lockdown that they were given. Mm-hmm. So we stayed in for two weeks and then after that, we were allowed to go out once a day. It's been really, really well respected here by people. Yep. Uh, most, most, most of them have been really, really um, staying inside and sticking to the rules rather like in New Zealand for the most part. Um, and uh, the reward of that, of course, is that uh, the numbers of um, infections have been declining dramatically and yeah. the number of deaths is below 140. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, yeah. well, compared with other Mediterranean countries like Italy, for example, yeah. where it's completely opposite. Um, but Greece realised very quickly because of 10 years of economic austerity and economic disaster that there was no way that they were going to be able to cope with the numbers of sick people if they just went with a business as usual plan. So yeah. for that reason, they have, uh, have really stuck down and, um, and, and done a good job because they knew they couldn't cope otherwise. So is it a kind of case of why protect the economy when it's not worth looking after? Um, well, the, the New Zealand economy and the Greek economy are very similar because they rely so much on tourism. So oh, really? the big discussion here at the moment is what to do in order to open the, um, the tourist uh, business which is, of course, in the middle of the year here in summer. So July, August is the peak year, the peak months. Mm. And so they're at, the, at the moment, they're looking into how they can start to do it, but with a restricted, obviously, restrictions on the numbers and the proximity of people. Um, so hopefully they'll be able to do something of it. But they're, ex- they're expecting a drop in you know, the GDP of like 8 to 9% here. Yeah. So oh, it's, wow. it's a bit of a disaster. And what, what have you been allowed to do? You said you could go out once a day. So yeah. how long for? So what you have to do is you have to um, send a text message to um, a number to explain why you're going out. Or if you don't have a UK or Greek um, phone number, 
you have to fill out a form and take it with you with your passport in case the police stop you. Um, that uh, there are six reasons you can go out. They're to do with exercise, taking um, food and medicine to family members and um, things like that. And uh, so for the most part, that's worked pretty well. Um, every time we go out, we just have to fill out a form or make a text message and we can go out. Most people are just going out walking in the near vicinity, doing a bit of exercise, cycling. It's, it's been really, really amazing how the car numbers have just dropped dramatically and people are actually going out and exercising. And it's changed a lot of people's views about things like bicycles and yep. um, exercise. A lot of people are walking around in places they've never walked before. We've been walking around, you know, where we live here. Um, we're on the, outs the, pro the outskirts of a reasonably large city called Larissa. Um, and uh, it's, it's been fantastic. You know, people have really embraced it and they've um, really, um, you know, done stuff they probably wouldn't, have, wouldn't normally do. So it's, it's, had its, it's had its benefits, I think. And the, life's, the, the wildlife seems to have come back as well. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah, we're, a lot of people here are noticing the bird life, but it's probably just because we're around a lot more to notice it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as, as well, you know, the, the, the fewer cars and the fewer car noises there are, the more you hear the background noise, which is the... Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so. so it sounds a bit tougher than uh, New Zealand. Um, so New Zealand, you could, you could go out any time. You just had to stay away from people and there was only certain exercises and you had to stay local. Yeah, no, it's, it, I think uh, the reason they, um, they've brought in this, they've made these changes is that they were suspicious that, because traditionally the Greeks are pretty independent. You know, they'll say what they think um, and then if they don't like authority, they'll go out and protest. Yeah. And so um, I think they were kind of expecting there would be a little bit more pushback, but there actually hasn't been. And the reason for that has been that it's been very well handled in terms of the government communications. So rather like in New Zealand here, we have every evening at six o'clock, we have a press conference, which is attended mostly by just two people, rather like at home. But not the prime minister, but one of the senior um, government ministers responsible for like civil um, law and order and things like that, as well as the scientist. He's the top epidemiologist in Greece. He gives the science. He talks about new research. He talks about what's going to happen. And then the civil service guy talks about the actual implementation of those rules. So together, they've become like, you know, like uh, Ashley Bloomfield. Um, they've become kind of like minor celebrities. And um, everybody watches it. It's really the focus of lots of people. The ratings are very high, if that matters. And so that means that uh, everyone's very well informed about the science and what's going on and what people are expecting. Yeah. Uh, contrasted, of course, with other countries where, you know, the, um, the level of communication is, is pretty woeful and uh, everyone, um, everyone knows the countries that I'm talking about. So Greece and New Zealand, are, I, I would say, at the very top in terms of what you should be doing in these kind of crises and managing it. And I think that's why um, the Greeks have responded so well to the to the crisis, and uh, they've by and large um, done what they're told to, that they've been told to. Yeah. So are the Greeks uh, are the Greeks kind of you know Italians are known for being pretty passionate and huggy and kissy and things like that, which could um, make social distancing a bit of a challenge. Are, they, are Greeks similar? Very similar. Yeah. There's yeah. Uh, lots of kiss kiss uh, male male and female together, and you know everybody. Uh, it's a greeting, common greeting. That's completely disappeared at the moment. Um, you kind of wave at people, uh, you know, you touch elbows if you're really, you know, a bit daring. Um, but that's basically completely, completely uh, stopped. A lot of people uh, stay inside. I know people here who've been, you know, locked down for 
three or four weeks. They haven't been out once, actually. Yeah. And that's, I think, because a lot of people live in um, apartments, uh, multi-story apartments, like three to four uh, stories high usually. Can't really go much higher than that for residential apartments. So a lot of people are living in um, quite small uh, accommodation, particularly in the cities. And so there's a tendency then, I think, to feel that, you know, it's less safe to go out um, because you do have, you, you are exposed to quite a lot of large numbers of people. Um, there have been outbreaks where we live in, in one of the suburbs and, um, and that was quarantined very rapidly. The police basically um, blocked the roads in and out and uh, stopped people from moving around. Um, and people just accepted that that was the best thing to do and just went with it. And, the, 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 uh, and that, that, that worked and the infections uh, dropped and disappeared. So is there, I mean, are people getting to exercise for their health and keeping up stuff for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of running. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of walking, a lot of cycling. It's been really impressive. So uh, lots of packs of kids cycling around together. Um, as things have started to look as though they're declining a lot, there's been a higher tendency to see uh, fewer, to see uh, more people out and about in, in increasingly larger groups, still maintaining social distance, though. Um, and... Uh, Generally speaking, the weather now is starting to get a bit better. It's going to be like 25, 26 degrees for the next five or six days, lots of sun. And there's an inverse relationship between the number of people that you see out and the temperature. Um, so when it's cold here, and when I say cold, when you're sort of hitting 17, 18 degrees, most Greeks think, that, think that's quite nippy and they'll right. put a jacket or a jersey on. Um, they'll, they'll stay inside for those days. And it's really quiet then. There's nobody around. When we arrived uh, four or five weeks ago, we arrived into the city and in, into Thessaloniki, uh, the second major city in Greece, second largest city, and it was just like a ghost town. And we knew then that they were going to take, they were taking it really seriously. Hmm. Excellent. So, what's your favourite Greek food? <laughs> Anything my mother-in-law cooks. Um, I like because I'm a vegetarian, so um, there's a very good selection of vegetarian foods in uh, Greece. I think that probably the most my most uh, favourite uh, dishes would be. You know, the pita, the spanakopita, the, um, the, uh, the pies that they make. Um, I also like um, yemistar, which is like stuffed uh, peppers, stuffed tomatoes with rice. Um, a lot of the baked aubergines that they do with uh, tomatoes and, and so on. Um, Yigantes, which is a big uh, Greek, uh, popular Greek dish um, made of um, beans, um, again, roasted in the oven. Um, big beans. Um, Oh, there's a whole range of things. And there's increasingly good wines as well to have in Greece. I mean, the, the days of the Repsina, which give you a really bad headache, have kind of, they're still around. You can buy really cheap booze in the supermarkets. You know, like you could buy a couple of litres for four, three or four euros, but you will suffer from that in the next, uh, you know, the next 24 hours if you do drink it. But there are increasingly good um, wines in Greece as well. And of course, the, the most important thing is the quality of the food. Like in New Zealand, the food is really good quality. It's not like stored and frozen for a long time. So the fruit is beautifully fresh and, and, and tasty and sweet. Uh, as I live in the UK, the, the fruit is you know, pretty woeful, really, um, by comparison. Oh, yeah, okay. So if you have good quality uh, ingredients, you know, you, the, the, the taste of the food is obviously going to be better. So um, where do you prefer hanging out for your work, uh, Greece or Oxford? Well, um, it's a bit of both really, but um, at the moment I've got uh, no choice to be but to be inside. But the lab I work in in Oxford, uh, we have about 15 people working there and um, it's a really nice place to be. I love it. Um, it's um, a very good team of people been working there. 
So it's not a, an unpleasant place to be at all. It's just that at the moment, uh, there's no choice but to be here. And so for that reason, I'm just focusing here on uh, writing and concentrating on um, putting out some, some written work and publications and things like that, uh, rather than um, spending a lot of time in the lab and data generating the data that uh, we work on. So do you do much teaching? Uh, yeah, I do a bit. Um, we have a master's course in uh, archaeological science that I uh, contribute to. I used to do some undergraduate uh, teaching at the college that I am at in Oxford, but, uh, but for the most part, I do research. I'm quite fortunate. Um, you'll hear a lot of people who do teaching, 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 complaining about the fact that they have such a big teaching load. Um, in Oxford, it's not quite so bad because the numbers of students are reasonably low. So if you're a teacher in a college, for example, you're usually going to be teaching as a tutor between one and three, sometimes four people uh, per time. Um, those, people, those people will have lectures, um, which are present, you know, which will be, they'll be present in larger numbers. But if you're a college tutor, your numbers are very, very low. And that low number is one of the advantages of the tutorial system because you get very high quality interaction with um, teachers and professors and tutors and so on. So in, our, in, our, in my um, discipline, which is archaeology, um, we, we only actually admit 23, 24 students per year to read archaeology. Hmm. And they're spread between six colleges. Hmm. So some colleges you know, have five students, some have one, some have two. Um, so it's a very small cohort. Hmm. And it's the same for other disciplines too. We only have about 10,000 um, undergraduate students across the university. So it's very uh, intense, short terms. Um, lots of contact hours, very, very small numbers of um, students, which makes a very um, quality, high quality um, teaching experience. Yeah. So you better tell us about what your um, work is, your lab work. So uh, what I do is I work in radiocarbon dating and uh, the, um, the radiocarbon method was developed in the 19, uh, late 1940s, but has since gone through a number of revolutions. And basically, I work in the application of archaeology, uh, radiocarbon to archaeology. So the lab I work in is the only one in the world which is really dedicated just to dating archaeological sites. There are more than 100 labs in the world that do radiocarbon dating, but they focus on other areas. Some of them are commercial labs. Some of them work in dating of the oceanic, um, oceanographic areas. Um, some work in uh, calibration of the method. There's a whole range of different applications, but we're really the only one that uh, specializes in archaeology. And that's exciting because I love you know, studying the past and the archaeology of what happened and how we became us. And so, uh, so for me, it's a great place to, to be based because uh, you know, it's one of the, um, if not the top lab in the world in this particular field. So why did you get into archaeology? Uh, so my dad's an archaeologist, and um, when I was at Otago as an undergraduate, I did uh, archaeology and anthropology as an introductory um, course. So I did uh, four courses in my first year, and archaeology was one of those. I was more interested in uh, geology, geography, and uh, history, in fact. But, and a bit uh, of music, I remember. Uh, sorry. A bit of music, I remember, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I worked in that, uh, I, I did uh, reasonably well in my first year and I decided to major in history and archaeology. So yep. that's where I started, but um, it was only really later that I started to find my um, niche. And that was when I did my master's because I was really interested in using um, science to understand more about the archaeological past. And so 
in my master's, I got interested in using isotope geochemistry to understand more about some of the bio, biological materials that have been left by uh, previous people living in archaeological sites in New Zealand, and, the, and mainly in the form of shell carbonates. So we have lots of shell middens around the coast in New Zealand from prehistoric times. And by measuring oxygen isotopes in the shells, you're able to reconstruct the temperature that these shells grew in, the mm. temperature condition. Mm. So as the, as, the, uh, as the oxygen isotopes vary, they go up and down in an annual cycle. Mm. And so we can actually tell at the very end of the shell's life what the temperature was like when they died. And therefore we can work out when people were there living at the site, which season. Mm. So I did this for the first time in, uh, in the New Zealand archaeological site at a site called Shag River Mouth, which is just up near Palmerston. Mm -hmm. And that was my master's. And so I started to get then more interested in isotopes and uh, the geochemical side of them. And then uh, for my PhD, I worked at the University of Waikato in the radiocarbon dating lab up there. And I started to work on using the radioactive isotope of carbon, which is carbon-14, of course, radiocarbon, to understand more about the age at which New Zealand had been settled first by humans, by Polynesians in this case, and understanding more about the spread of humans uh, in, in both islands and how that compared with um, previous interpretations of the prehistoric sequence of New Zealand. So that's, where I, that's what I worked on for the most part before I left to go to, uh, to Oxford in uh, 2001. So what's your work in Oxford mostly based on? So um, when I was in Oxford, I was very lucky because I got uh, one of the first people that I met when I arrived was a guy called Roger Jacobi, who was a Paleolithic archaeologist. Paleolithic uh, refers to the Old Stone Age. So we're talking there about the period up to about 10,000 years ago uh, when people used stone tools. And the part of the Paleolithic that he was very interested in was called the Middle and the Upper Paleolithic. And that's basically the period where our modern human ancestors come out of Africa and then they start to spread throughout the rest of Eurasia and they meet people like Neanderthals who were using what we call the middle Paleolithic stone tools industry. And so this period is basically really interesting and important because it's, it's, it tells us about the, the dates. It tells us about what happened when our ancestors met some of our close cousins who are now of course extinct. So I began to get interested in this from a dating perspective because of the really key importance of providing chronologies to this period, finding out when they moved out, when they moved into this place or that place, and also when Neanderthals disappeared. So since then, I've been very interested in working this out. I've done a lot of uh, work in this area to figure out um, you know, aspects of our late prehistory. So from a period of about 60,000 years ago to about 20,000 years ago is a that's the period I've been working on mostly to figure out exactly what happened. And of course, now we know a lot more than we did before because we know that Neanderthals disappeared around 40,000 years ago. That's from our work. And we also know that they interbred with modern humans uh, as well um, on more than one occasion. So of course, most people now know that we have Neanderthal DNA in our genomes as well as simply being modern human in origin. So you're interested in dating in both forms of the word <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I, I'm interested generally in, uh, in dating, exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, so what are Neanderthals like? What have you been able to find out about them? 
Well, what we're increasingly finding out is that Neanderthals, you know, traditionally we kind of thought they were like cavemen, you know, yeah. a little bit below us, um, a bit more savage, you know, not us. But as more work has gone on, we've started to discover that actually there's not much that you can tell that's different between us. Uh, we used to think that modern humans were more superior and we swept in with a better technology and ways of communicating and all sorts of, you know, um, superior cognitive skills. But more and more, the latest discoveries over particularly the last 10 years are telling us were as capable as we were and that the problems we've had in interpreting all of this are basically because of the fact that we haven't really had the the nice chronological control that we, what we need in order to work out who did what first. So for example, we've assumed that when we see the beautiful cave art in archaeological sites in Europe, we, we assume that that is done by modern humans. Mm -hmm. And that's because most of the cave art we see, we think dates to after the period after we arrive. But in 2018, some colleagues of mine were doing some work in Spain trying to date some of these artworks and they found that some of them dated to more than 70,000 years ago and that could only mean that Neanderthals were making them. Another discovery in a cave site in France showed that inside deep in a cave about 150 meters inside a cave they found these uh, stalagmites um, that were arranged in a sort of circular shape into yes. some kind of weird thing and they they dated that and they found that was more than 160,000 years ago so Neanderthals were doing things that we thought only we did um, much earlier than modern humans uh, were doing when we first arrived. So now we've seen this happening again and again. We thought Neanderthals were kind of cave-dwelling, cave meat-eating brutes. We now know that actually they weren't. They ate a whole wide variety of foods. They, they, for example, we found evidence in this dental plaque of Neanderthals that they were eating you know, fruits and they were eating nuts and uh, they, they even perhaps self-medicated. We found um, pieces of... Um, molecular um, uh, evidence in tooth dental plaque that showed they may have been treating themselves with herbs that we now associate with the extraction of things for antibiotics, for example, like wow. salicyclic acid and stuff like that. And so they were not these dummies, you know, they were very similar to us. Yeah. And that makes us think more now about why it is that they disappeared because it's easy to say, oh, they disappeared because they were just a bit less capable than we were. But yeah. if they weren't less capable, what's the reason why they disappeared and we managed to survive? So we're looking at these things in a whole new light now. And I think that actually the main reason that Neanderthals disappeared and we didn't might have been simply the case, simply as uh, just demographic reasons, that they were just less of them than we were. Mm. And they, they were just swamped by us in the end because they were living in, a, in an environment in Europe which was a bit colder and there were less of them. And we, lived, we were coming out of Africa and in tropical um, biomes, you can have a much higher carrying capacity, more people can live. I think that might have just have been the difference between us. So the, our understanding of Neanderthals is really going through a revolution at the moment. Um, and very interestingly, uh, raising a whole lot of new questions about how and why we managed to survive and they didn't. Yeah, I mean, so humans came out of Africa 10,000 years ago, is that right? Uh, well, we think that probably earlier than that. Uh, but the problem is that when we became modern human, is, 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 it's very hard to, to know precisely. We can see in the fossil record skulls that look increasingly like us, but not quite, you know, bigger brow ridges and more robust. 
And so it's very hard to know exactly, oh, look, that's the first modern human. It doesn't happen like that. As evolution progresses, you get, you know, you get forms that are part one, part the other. I think it's fair to say that people who we would say are modern human began to appear in the fossil record by at least 150,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago. And some, in some sites outside of Africa, we have evidence for people as early as 120, 130,000 years ago. But we think that they went extinct. They didn't contribute to the modern humans that we are. And so modern humans, we think, in the most part, came out of Africa in bigger numbers at around 55 to 60,000 years ago, perhaps a little earlier than that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, we came out at least twice. And, uh, and then by about 45 to 50,000 years ago, we're spreading everywhere into Australia, into you know, all the parts of Eurasia, into Europe. And then by 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals have gone. And so it's just us. Except there's a bit of their DNA in us. Yeah, and uh, also the, the picture is becoming increasingly um, more complicated because of course, it's not just that there was us and them, there were actually other uh, hominins, other human members of the human family now that we know about outside of Africa too. So in 2010, for example, uh, this mysterious group called the Denisovans was discovered in a cave in the Altai in the central part of Russia. Um, and these were people who were found basic on the basis of ancient DNA evidence from a small bone. Uh, and the DNA sequences that were extracted showed that they weren't modern humans. There was something else. These Denisovans lived in the eastern parts of Eurasia. So imagine if you divide Eurasia into two bits in the very far east in China um, and, and out in that direction. And we now know that uh, those people also interbred with our modern human ancestors. And so living people in Melanesia, uh, parts of Eastern Asia, uh, Australia and Aboriginal people, they have a percentage of Denisovan DNA as well as Neanderthal DNA. Whereas people living in the Western part of Eurasia, they only have Neanderthal DNA, but some people in the East have Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA. We also know now that there were more than one population of Denisovans. There were perhaps three different groups of Denisovans living in East Asia that we just didn't know about before. We also know that there were other groups of humans living in that part of the world too. For example, on Flores, we have the hobbits who were discovered in 2003. So these are these very small one meter high people, no longer with us, sadly. Um, and they have only been found on one island and that's the island of Flores in Indonesia. And then in January of 2019, a new species of humans were found in the Philippines on the island of Luzon. And like the hobbits, they were also very short, about one and a half, about 1.1 meters tall. And we call them Homo luzonensis. There may also have been other hominins that were also living in that area. So Homo erectus, which is a very ancient human dating back to about 1.6 million years. We think that there's a high chance that Homo erectus may have been living at the time our early modern human ancestors arrived into Indonesia about 40 to 50,000 years ago too. So we're looking at a situation where there were probably at least six or seven different groups, different types of humans living in the world until about 45,000 years ago. We like to think that we're unique, that there's yeah. only one kind of us. Yeah. But our uniqueness only started the day before yesterday in geological terms. Yeah. So have you been able to find any evidence of pandemics amongst them? That's a really good question, actually. The pandemic issue is, um, 
people have suggested that diseases might have been the reason why uh, Neanderthals disappeared. Um, I'm not a big fan of this as a causal factor in disappearance. I think it's, it's possible that you know, diseases could have been a problem and they could have reduced the population numbers and that could have led to you know, this disparity in populations between modern humans and Neanderthals, sure. But I don't think it, disease could have wiped out everybody because there's always going to be some, there always going to be some people that are resistant and that don't die of these diseases. People have suggested that uh, some of these um, diseases like uh, uh, these um, uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, uh, these protein folding uh, diseases might have been a problem. Um, for example, in uh, Papua New Guinea in the 1950s, there's this disease called Kuru that went around. And uh, this was because people were eating the brains of dead uh, relatives after they died as a, as a soul cleansing um, me mechanism. So they were eating the brains of dead people. And through this, through this mechanism, uh, CJD, or its equivalent, um, you know, the mad cow disease, uh, began to spread through the communities. And uh, lots of people were dying in the 1950s before it was realized what was going on. And it's been suggested that a similar type of um, illness could have been manifest amongst Neanderthals, who we know were on occasion cannibals. Hmm. But again, I think, I think it's unlikely that, that such a thing could be responsible for, for you know, removing an entire population because the populations were quite spread. You know, there were people living right across Eurasia. And I think for a disease to have spread so, so, so widely is unlikely. Yeah. Um, not, 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 uh, I'm not saying that it, that it couldn't, uh, that it didn't happen in small areas and that people didn't suffer from illnesses and disease. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's the case that it's likely that uh, it was the cause of a disappearance of an entire group of people. Yeah. So the difference between Neanderthals and, and modern, modern humans, is that kind of like the difference between um, orangutans and uh, chimpanzees? Um, it's, uh, it's not as different. No, there's not, uh, there's not such a great difference between us. If you, uh, if you imagine, um, if you imagine, uh, our chimpanzee, our common ancestor with chimpanzees, let's say 6 million to 7 million years ago and us here. And if you wanted to know the difference between us, Neanderthals and the chimpanzee ancestor, you'd go back around 13% of the way back to that ancestor. And for Denisovans, you'd go back around 14% of the way. So they're very closely related, Neanderthals and Denisovans. But they're closer to us. We're much closer related to them. And that's why, although there have been suggestions of difficulties with respect to interbreeding, uh, that's why, in some cases, we were able to have uh, offspring. And Denisovans and Neanderthals interbred with, one each other, with each other and had offspring too. Um, so we're quite, quite close, more closely related than uh, chimpanzees and orangutans. Yeah. So as a as a, a, a wacky uh, tangent here, um, since I'm an endurance runner, um, you know, would would Neanderthal genes uh, be uh, helpful or harmful in in helping endurance sport? That's a good question. Um, so at the moment, there's a lot of work going on to to understand. What are the genetic uh, differences? Which variants do we have that are different between us and Neanderthals? And what those different genes code for? And so um, a lot of uh, work has been going in now to, because there are huge genetic biobanks that we have access to. So in the UK, for example, there's a the UK biobank has around three quarters of a million people DNA in it, people's DNA, and also interviews between, with them. 
to tell you what their phenotype is, what their kind of adaptation is, uh, from all sorts of things like you know what time you wake up in the morning to uh, how long do you spend on the mobile phone to um, you know um, what kind of food do you like, um, what's your disease history, and so on and so forth. And it turns out that there aren't that many things that jump out that have Neanderthal-related uh, variants. Um, there are a few things that are interesting. So, for example, we know that um, uh, how you feel in terms of what kind of a person you are in the morning or the evening. Are you a morning person, an evening person? Those actually quite strongly are linked with Neanderthal variants. Um, and we think that's to do with the fact that people, Neanderthals, lived closer to the northern parts of the Eurasian latitudes than to the south. And that may be the reason why. We always thought that there was red hair might have been a, a, a Neanderthal um, a variant. This latest work has shown that's not true. Skin color and skin type and hair type. We, we have certain things that seem to come from Neanderthals like a better quality of skin and collagen and uh, gel, uh, keratin, mm -hmm. uh, hair, things like that. And we also know that we get certain deleterious things from Neanderthals like um, diabetes uh, related genes. Uh, Addiction-related genes, like for example, uh, coding for things like smoking addictions. So, um, but for the most part, I don't know of anything related to uh, something that might make you a better runner, um, perform better, uh, have better um, uh, breathing or lungs or anything like that. Um, although, you know, it's really important to say you might have some Neanderthal variants, but there are other things that make that um, variance um, act. That, that, that allele um, to act. And so there are environmental variables as well. And that makes it very difficult to know. If, even if you do have something that codes for a certain thing, whether or not it's gonna act on you in, um, in your daily life. So if you took a typical uh, modern human, a typical Neanderthal, who would win a race? <laughs> well, I think that if you look at Neanderthal muscula the musculature, they're very strong, squat, if you cut a, a Neanderthal femur in half, you'd have a big, robust bone, whereas ours would be a lot more gracile and, and uh, less thick. So you, you can imagine um, a Neanderthal being a pretty good wrestler, uh, pound yep. for pound. They're Got strong, it. short, stocky, and their rib cage is quite, uh, it's kind of a strange V-shaped rib cage. Very strong hands, very strong arms, uh, physically uh, quite robust. Running, I'd say they'd be more suited to the shorter explosive running distances rather than us. We'd be much better on the longer distances, taller, lankier, lither, less body weight. But I wouldn't like to particularly take on a Neanderthal in 110 meter hurdles or sort of, you know, 200 meters. I think they'd be pretty uh, explosive at the start. And they, if you give them a bit of training, they'd probably, they'd probably whip, whip you. But, but give them a 10,000 meters, Steve, I think you'd be all over the map. Okay, I probably don't have much Neanderthal on me. I'm, I'm pretty slow on the short distances. Hey, um, tell me about your um, other work, your Da Vinci Code unit. Oh, yes. So, um, so this goes back to, um, I guess, I've been working on this stuff for the last 10 years. But before that, our lab's been occasionally working on things like relics. And uh, relics are, of course very um, important um, historically for understanding the development of the Western church and lots of other religions too. Uh, the veneration and worship of relics with specific history has a very, um, a very important uh, role, um, has, has played a very important role in the development of the, of the Western churches. And we can see that through history. Um, 
even today we see that relics are used um, by many churches most pro pro probably uh, the most uh, famous would be the catholic church to um uh, to begin and to build churches on holy ground um relics are, are used uh, to this day by the catholic church in building new churches and uh, using relics of uh, saints and, and known important people and so i guess the first time we really got involved in um in relics and looking at what they were um was the shroud of Turin, which um, was radiocarbon dated in 1985 in my lab and uh, in three other labs. And the reason we were able to do that work was because we were using a new method, using an accelerator to measure radiocarbon dating, to measure radiocarbon dates. And uh, this means we need very small amounts of material now. A few milligrams is enough. And so the, the shroud was the first time anyone really dated such a big, important Christian object. And um, people might re remember that the dates that came out came out much later than they than they would be expected to be had this been a genuine um, relic uh, related to Jesus in this case. So the dates came out in the 14th century AD. Since then, we've dated various other relics uh, related to people from you know, um, uh, different uh, um, uh, churches and museums. And uh, we've now um, sort of formalized this work. And as you say, we, we got nicknamed the Da Vinci Code um, unit because um, because of the fact that uh, we were in the news a, a few years ago when we dated a, a piece of bone that was excavated from a site in uh, Bulgaria on an island called Sveti Ivan. And this uh, bone was uh, in a box and on the box was written in ancient Greek uh, words that uh, asked this person called Thomas, uh, Thomas, we, we asked God to help Thomas to transport these relics um, of uh, this person whose name was John and it gave the feast day of uh, John the Baptist and uh, the uh, archaeologists involved found this under a, um, an altar in an ancient church that was dated to about the 5th century AD. When we dated the bone from this uh, collection from this box we found that one of the human bones dated to the 1st century AD so we couldn't disprove that it wasn't the bone of John the Baptist. And so since then, we, um, we, we've been working on analyzing other remains of other uh, um, identified saints belonging to John the Baptist to try and use techniques like ancient DNA, stable isotope analysis and dating radiocarbon to work out if there's any that actually link to that uh, um, relic to find out if they're from the same individual, for example, or they moved at the same, at the same time. And uh, obviously, for the, most, for the most part, we find the relics don't date to that period at all. They're much later. And that's because the Christian church, particularly around the time of the Crusades, were making and distributing relics um, that were obviously not from the original people. So there's a huge number of relics that aren't related to the period or the date. Yep. But that's not really what we're interested in. We're really interested in working out more historically um, what went on in the past and when these relics moved around and who they might be. And using these modern scientific techniques, now we can do that. We can work out where the most likely source of the bone is, where that person likely came from. We can work out the date, we can do the genetics, and we can work out the relatedness between different bones said to be um, of the same person. And so we're not really interested in proving or disproving something because as scientists, in this particular case, we can only, we can only show that something wasn't something of somebody. We can't say this is definitely a bone of John the Baptist or this is definitely a bone of St. John. We can only say that it's not. 
with scientific certainty. Um, so for example, uh, a, good ex a good example of stuff we've done recently, uh, we looked at um, the relics re um, related to St. Peter. And there's a widespread um, claim that prior to about 750 AD, the Catholic Church dis uh, distributed um, bones, holy bones related to St. Peter's remains to churches in the north of Europe to um, establish new churches and new cathedrals in that area. Um, so we went and we looked at some of these examples, and there are not very many of them. And uh, what we found was that, uh, for the most part, they weren't dating to before that period. They were dating after that period. And that suggests that the Catholic Church um, didn't have remains. Uh, is, um, they, they made up that story um, in order to try and extend and help the um, establishment of new churches in these new areas, as you'd expect them to do. I mean, this is just part and parcel of what you do if you're trying to expand your reach. You magically appear with a whole lot of really important relics and convince the local people that these genuinely are those relics. And, and of course, they weren't. Um, and later in the Crusades, yeah, later in the Crusades, they did the same thing. You know, they were like, pieces of the true cross were appearing all the time. Yeah. And um, we can tell exactly when <laughs> a lot of these uh, items date to because we know when the Pope visited these areas, we know when he gave the pieces of uh, the true cross, we can then date them. And lo and behold, we find that they date to the same times the Pope visited Ireland or the Pope visited France right. and so on and so forth. So it's, it's just a, a very interesting way of exploring the relationship between um, these relics and historical events uh, back in time. So has this got you in trouble with the church at all? Um, in, a, in, in most ways, no. In some ways, um, there's, uh, we, we do get a slight reluctance. The tragic thing is, though, Steve, is that in these, um, many of these churches in, um, in the more um, secular West have begun to fall into disrepair, and a lot of them are closing in quite alarming rates. And so now there's a proliferation of availability of relics on places like eBay. You can buy them. Um, and that's because um, they're, for, for the most part, they're being thrown away or, right. or given away or wow. sold. Actually. Yeah. So even if, even if they're just a thousand years, there's still historical value there and it's been lost. Absolutely. And we've visited uh, um, collectors in the US who've um, bought on eBay you know, hundreds of relics. Um, and in some cases, they're very, uh, potentially very significant relics yeah. that we've ourselves been analyzing. For example, we have relics we found relics of John the Baptist, of uh, Thomas a Becket, um, of several um, other historic figures. Um, and we found them uh, in an American church in Chicago. And um, we've, we've been working with uh, the priest there who owns the relics. He's been buying them for his church. And we've been um, analyzing some of them. So, but I also should say, relics are not solely, um, they're not solely Christian relics. We also work with relics that are related to royalty and to famous historical persons. And so the most famous of these ones that we've worked on in the past would be Richard III. Mm. So we, we dated Richard III. We were part of that research team that showed the bones in the car park were actually the bones of Richard III. And we're also working uh, at the moment on bones purported to be of King Alfred. Um, we're interested in working on, um, on the Anglo-Saxon kings to figure out who, who they were in the, in the cathedral at Winchester in the UK. Lots of the bones were buried there, but they got mixed up during the Reformation. And they're trying to work out who belongs to who. And now, using you know, ancient genetics and ancient DNA, we can actually work out who was related to one another. And uh, oh. so it's really exciting to be able to put these collections back together and figure out 
you know who was who and and where they where they were and perhaps we'll find some remains of more kings in the future as we continue this work so have you been able to trace your own genome to any of these <laughs> so um sadly uh i mean it's it's really difficult to do that because of course we're so mixed up and even going back a small number of generations it, it it's it's very easy to be related to somebody um and it doesn't mean anything um, and it's very easy to demonstrate this. So for example, if you think about how many, uh, you go back in your family tree, you've got two parents and they've got two parents and they've got two parents. And by the time you get back four or five generations, you've got, a, you know, you've got hundreds of people in your ancestry. And that means that for the most part, people are very closely related to one another. Yeah. Anybody who goes onto one of these commercial websites now and these DNA companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, um, you know, you get uh, emails every week saying we've added more uh, relatives to you and you go in and they're like sixth to seventh cousins or fifth to sixth cousins. We're all very closely related to one another. So it's not surprising to hear that, uh, you know, you can say, oh, you know, I'm related to John the Baptist or I'm related to, you know, Richard III or I'm related to, you know, um, you know pick, a, pick, a, pick a famous historical figure and we've probably all got a pretty good chance that we are in some way related to them. Yeah, I've got the third wife of King Edward VIII, I think. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, part yeah. of a commercial service, isn't it? So, you know, it's not surprising that. Yeah, 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 yeah no, fair enough. Hey, um, so, you know, you get to dig around in caves and, and, and um, dig up altars and churches and things like this. Do you get called Indiana Jones much? Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, Indiana Jones is uh, one of my favorite uh, movie characters. But um, for the most part, those kind of uh, swashbuckling days have disappeared in the long distant past, as you might not be surprised to hear. Oh, Back no. in, the 19, in the 1800s, you know, um, yeah, okay, fair enough. Some people might have been a bit like that. But nowadays, we work in big teams of a variety of different specialists. So the lab I work, for example, we, you know, we have archeologists, but we also have geologists, geochemists, chemists, physicists, whole range of people so far from the from the old days of uh, rushing and digging a hole and then getting the hell out with some you know blow darts being fired at you um it's it's much more sober than that nowadays but, but i do have to say that we do occasionally have um you know a, a little bit of excitement um along the way now i could tell you some stories over a beer steve um that might make your sort of hair turn but for the most part we're very conscious now of health and safety <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he didn't exactly. have to worry about that in the 1940s, did he? <laughs> no, he didn't do any kind of um, any kind of risk assessments. I don't think the word risk assessment had been invented then. And no, the word health and safety. I didn't see any high-vis vests or um, helmets being worn. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. So if 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 you know, who would you be be your favourite actor, Tom Hanks or Harrison Ford? Oh, I'd, I'd say Harrison Ford by a long stretch. Yeah. I mean, you know, not only does he does he have uh, Indiana Jones in his in his in his um in his resume, but uh, you know, there's a range of other fantastic uh, uh, film films as well and um, great a acting roles. So he'd be he'd be he'd be top of the tree for me. I do like Tom Hanks though, but uh, but no, you you can't go past uh, Harrison Ford. No, I'd agree. I'd agree. I mean, Tom Hanks did Forrest Gump, but he also did Da Vinci Code. It was a bit of a low point, I thought. <laughs> actually i was in um i was in uh 
Hungary once um, in Budapest at the museum there, the National Museum taking samples. And there was something strange happening next door. And it was actually the filming of the his second um, Da Vinci Code, I think it was Tom Hanks, was it? I don't know. But anyway, they said, oh, Tom Hanks is here. And, um, you know, he's uh, filming out, out, out back. And so um, sort of mostly we were inside the museum working, but around lunchtime, I decided to wander around and see if I could spot anyone famous. But I think, um, I think they were in their caravans or something. But uh, we, did over, we did overlap for a little bit, but not much. Okay. Yeah, he might have been interested to know what it's really like to pull up altars and things like that. Yeah, no, it's actually quite cool. I mean, I work with a guy called George Kazan, who's a real expert in um, ecclesiastical um, church history. And so, you know, going to some of these, some of these places and having a look at, at what relics they have got. And then we have, we have you know, looked behind altars and things um, and, and seeing what's there and trying to pick up a trail. And it's, it's actually really exciting to, to, to be involved in that kind of work, um, to try and piece together this historic jigsaw to figure out what happened where do these relics come from, you know? And there's always, there were always some really interesting stories about them being hidden, reappearing, rediscovered, and so on and so forth. So uh, it, is, it, is, it is really exciting on occasion to, um, to be involved in these things. Yeah, you've got to stress that. You've got to make archeology span sexy, like, like Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, it is really exciting and sexy in, in many ways. Um, yeah. uh, sadly, the, um, the number of jobs out there is, um, is, is, uh, is few. Um, although you know, a lot of colleagues of mine get jobs in commercial archaeology um, and in New Zealand particularly, um, a lot of my colleagues work in commercial archaeological work, uh, you know, head of redevelopments and buildings and things like that. There are, there are laws in place that protect archaeological sites. So if you find an archaeological site, you have to, it's, it's protected and you have to ex excavate and, and uh, investigate it properly. So a lot of um, archaeological work in New Zealand and other countries is, is done through commercial firms and commercial companies. So there's quite a few jobs there. Yeah. Um, in the UK, where I've got most experience, though, those jobs are, are comparatively less well-paid than they should be. Um, so when they were building Terminal 5 at Heathrow, for example, the, um, of all of the people that worked on that construction, it took four, four years or so, um, you know, sparkies and builders and, you know, um, everyone, everyone involved, the lowest paid people on the site were archaeologists. They, paid, <laughs> they got paid the lowest. Why did they have archaeologists um, building Heathrow? Oh, because they had the huge Bronze Age um, archaeology at the site. So that, first of all, that had to be explored and excavated. Mm -hmm. um, and so a vast area was uncovered. They found Bronze Age barrows, these, these um, mounds, ancient mounds and burials. They found village evidence. They found a whole lot of stuff. Not just from the Bronze Age. And that took uh, several months to, to, to dig and excavate. Yeah. Yeah. Before the before the before the uh, airport uh, was able to start construction. Yeah. So, um, you know, if people wanted to get into archaeology from a simple point of view, um, is there is there you know stuff on Neanderthals for dummies or something like that? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, um, there is a range now of um, online open online courses that uh, you can do if you're interested in finding out more about archaeology. In uh, New Zealand, there are two main places you can go to learn and, um, and work in archaeology in Auckland and Otago universities respectively. And anthropology is also taught in other universities too. But um, there's been, um, in the you know, wake of the lockdown, there's been some really interesting online courses that have been started hmm. where you can do things like get introductions to aerial archaeology and using a technique called LIDAR to look at the surfaces of the earth to find out archaeological sites. And uh, 
a lot of these courses are free. So if you, if you look online and you, you know, you're interested in, in having a go, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can find. A lot of these um, big archaeological um, associations around the world are very um, helpful. They have websites that uh, give you access to information regarding courses and online teaching. Um, and there's a whole range of stuff out there on uh, YouTube that you can look at and watch. Um, lots of good books that are available uh, increasingly uh, in free form. Um, so yeah, it's possible to um, to get involved as an interested amateur in more and more um, more and more professional ways. Cool. Sounds good. All right, one last question, Tom. Yeah. What music are you listening to at the moment? Well, you know, I'm I'm growing this lockdown moustache, and um, I'm starting to think of myself as um, you know, sort of going back into the like 1970s late 1960s so I've started to um, listen to music that I haven't really got into before when I was a kid I was uh, really into the punk rock and um, I still am um, and I, it'll never it'll never be anything anything else less than second place but I'm starting to um, listen to a you know uh, a bit of um, Credence Clearwater Revival um, occasionally my son uh, loves that he loves dancing around to it a bit of that swamp rock music um, been getting back into a bit of Beatles, um, you know, Sergeant Peppers, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm very eclectic in my tastes. I like I like all sorts of things. My um, my wife is um, into heavy metal, so she's introduced me to a lot of um, a lot of uh, music that I never really listened to when I was a kid. You know, some of the some of the big heavy metal bands, and I started to really like bands like Metallica um, and, and so on. I like I like loud distortion, guitar distortion. Yeah. Um, early, um, early Black Sabbath is, um, is, 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 is on my playlist at the moment too. So I'm kind of going through a 70s phase. Yeah. Do you still play yourself? I have a guitar at home um, and I've actually been missing it um, while I've been over here in lockdown. So I think I might actually go and see if I can buy a cheap guitar to strum on. But yeah, I just, I just amuse myself. Um, my wife likes it when I play. She also likes it when I stop though, funny enough. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> hey, I'd better let you go. I think you've got you go look after your son, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I've got to go and do some childcare now. Okay, thanks heaps for chatting, mate. It's a good way to spend um, another hour of lockdown. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. And uh, say hi to everyone from me there and uh, keep, up the, keep up the running, guys. Two relics. We've got shrouds from uh, Turin. <laughs> uh, wine from the wedding at Cana. Splinters from the cross. And of course, there's uh, all the stuff made by Jesus in his days in the carpentry shop. Mm -hmm. Got uh, pipe racks, coffee tables, cake stands, bookends, crucifixes, a nice cheese board, fruit bowls, waterproof sandals. Oh, I haven't finished this one yet. But this is disgraceful, my lord. All of these are obviously fake. <laughs> yes. But, but how will people be able to tell the difference between these and the real relics? But they won't. That's the point. <laughs> well, you won't be able to fool everyone. Look. I have here a true relic. What is it? It is a bone from the finger of our Lord. It cost me 31 pieces of silver. Good Lord, is it real? It is, my Lord. Baldrick, you stand amazed. I am. I thought they only came in boxes of ten. 